2: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and it's another fine kind of morning. Um, and the presenters we have for today is myself, Jacob Antwaffer,
2: and Felix Dance. How are you going?
0: All right. Now, um, we have a, we have a good pro, um, we have a bit of a pretty good program kind of lined up for you this week. Um, but I guess before we go on, on to what's kind of happening, I would like to just acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. we like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. So um, I thought maybe we can start off um, for the first um, part of the program, maybe having a bit of a discussion about any sort of... Kind of everyday political kind of developments. So I guess have happened in the past week that have been a bit of a kind of a highlight that you, um, that we might think is worth discussing. I mean, maybe just start off with Felix.
2: What are you, what is some of your thoughts you have on the mind? Well, um, I definitely think the main the main thing that's come out from this week is the release of the IPCC uh, climate change report, which comes out once every five years, I think it is, and this one, it was like there's no particularly unexpected information in it it's uh, apocalyptical, but it was good to see that some of the language that was used was was quite strong and it's been reported in a lot of media about um irreversible and uh um uh, inevitable climate change happening uh within the next couple of decades so the horizon's actually been brought forward from the previous ipcc report um and some of the reporting that have that's gone around that and how it's been presented and also the response to from politicians, from Scott Morrison, from mm-hmm. the right-wing media. So we'll be having a, an interview with Alex Bainbridge about this later in the program. But um, I think that's, that's the main thing that sort of um, hit the discourse from this week, and there's a lot of good issues to talk about around that. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I guess the, the other kind of thing that's um, still worth probably mentioning is, I mean, Obviously, we can't kind of ignore that we are sort of in the midst of the COVID-19 kind of pandemic.
2: Hard um, to
0: ignore. And um, hitting us right And in fact, Canberra just hit its first lockdown, um, I think, for almost a year or almost months. I forgot. Yeah, well,
2: ever, ever since the very beginning, I think Canberra locked down just like everybody else did in March 2020. And they've been relatively spared from all of the outbreaks that other states, especially Melbourne, have. Um, uh, have experienced so they've been fairly lockdown free for the last eighteen months.
0: Yeah, and then and then we've also had um, the cases um, pop up in regional New South Wales, like areas such as Byron Bay um, and so on. Um, so that's been some of the kind of developments that have, I guess, kind of happened. And I guess one of the other kind of some of the one positive thing I just want to sort of highlight is I do think it's um, just to give some credit to the Victorian state government. I do, I do like the fact that they, um, um, implemented the vaccine centers for the AstraZeneca for anyone sort of who wants to kind of get it. Um, so one of the kind of interesting things that I think that reveals kind of politically is the, the fact that there's been such a large take up of young people, um, wanting to get the kind of COVID-19 vaccine. And in fact, there's kind of a lot of discourse in the sort of capitalist kind of media around, you know, vaccine hesitancy, which I don't think is, I don't think um, doesn't exist, but I do think in some sense um, there's an element of kind of exaggeration from the kind of liberal kind of press um, that tries to kind of centre people who refuse to get vaccinated as being the issue, when actually the whole The actual context, we're kind of living in your way, is actually there's quite a large section of working class people and RNA people, especially young people, who have been wanting to get vaccinated, but they've never, but there's just been, the government vaccines world has been so sort of tippet that there hasn't necessarily been that opportunity. Uh, Yeah,
2: Yeah, like it's, people are, they want to get vaccinated, like the messaging is all over the place. Do you get Pfizer? Do you get AstraZeneca? AstraZeneca is too dangerous for people under 40, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's it's been a mess, really. And also the supply issues. If, if the government's saying you have to get Pfizer, there's not enough of that to go around. Um, and now, yeah, now that they've opened it up to everyone, people are getting on board. I definitely think so. And it is, I definitely detect, like, from the media, from politicians, particularly the people who are responsible for this mess, Scott Morrison, the Liberal Party um, in the Commonwealth, uh, they are desperate to put it back onto the individual because... Of course, if there's a failure of um, organisation of government in allowing the population to get vaccinated, what do you do? You got to blame someone. Who do you blame? Put it all on the individual. They like they do like to emphasise the vaccine hesitancy. Now it could be a problem. So like I'm not, I'm not convinced that you know everyone. I, I I can see that the line go up in terms of vaccines. It could plateau out. It's hard to know where that's going to be. But yeah, we got to watch it play out because. Who knows? Like, I was actually, you know, just as a random example, I'm not sure it's not exactly connected. The census, people always talk about, you know, like there's a bit of media around people refusing to fill out the census. But the census gets like 90, the high 94s, 95% response rate. Like, that's unimaginable, really. And if vaccination is even similar to that, um, you know, maybe it'll just turn out to be a lot more taken up than... People assume, and that it's not the not on the individual's <laughs> responsibility to fix the problems of supply. And actually, interesting thing to
0: note um, is in the case um, of what's kind of happening internationally um, is. One of the kind of um, – is in, in the United States, the Delta variant is currently kind of hitting through. In fact, I've already actually – there's already been a lot of interesting indirect sort of media news stories in relation to the sort of outbreak in the United States. Now, despite the fact that the United States has had a much more advanced sort of vaccination kind of program uh, – the, the, it, does, it hasn't stopped the COVID cases from kind of piling up and sort of leading to some um, level of um, hospitalizations and deaths. So there are currently some parts of the US that are currently being ravaged by the Delta variant. But I guess another kind of political issue that's sort of happening there, and this goes back to the kind of question around vaccine hesitancy and um, anti-vaccination views, um, that is quite, in the, United, in the United States context, that is actually quite a big current In um, particular states, so we're finding that the states that have the highest levels of anti sort of vaccination sort of opinion um, have tend to have the, are tending to lead to kind of deaths and um, increased hospitalizations compared to those who obviously have been higher rates of vaccination.
2: They do have this very strong libertarian strand that runs through their culture in the United States that doesn't exactly exist here like we we've imported some of it but it's only on the fringes i think
0: yeah and i think actually the one thing i sort of want to say is really on that like when it comes to this sort of level of anti-vaccination sort of views and vaccine hesitancy it's not that um, when you look at the western context it actually goes back a bit to sort of the original point around how the capitalist class likes to frame things around the individual in actual fact the capitalist class is actually lays a lot of responsibility for this, the propagation of anti-vaccination views. Uh, in fact, even a lot of the capitalists, um, a lot of the capitalists last year, asked, um, tried to pretend that the virus didn't exist, um, because they wanted to, um, to make money out of it, <laughs> uh, to make money, uh, <laughs> and, profit. And
2: a, yeah, because they lost money from lockdowns until the you know the money tap got turned on but um
0: yeah and they <laughs> and they've also um through like um political parties like the republicans have legitimized anti sort of vaccination yeah. sort of opinion
2: not, not to mention news limited <laughs> mm. which is sort of walking walking that that stance back at the moment but uh for a long time news limited sky news mm. was like full on anti vax like they would air all sorts of just ridiculous opinions mm. and yeah it is it is amazing it's like it's 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 so obvious to take a step back and to see what's happening because the 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 ruling class the capitalist class loves they've created this society in which they've created scarcity over a whole bunch of different areas and then when people suffer because of that scarcity they turn around and they blame it on the people who are suffering it's like stop hitting yourself levels <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think that that's definitely i think a kind
0: of notable kind of trend um with this whole with this whole kind of discussion around um around covid um you know all these sort of there's all this pitting of blame on individuals yet in a- actual fact when you whatever you go going to looking at a country like the united states um or australia ultimately all the the kind of issues and problems actually stem a lot from the top and sort of Raises the kind of case for why we need to be arguing, you know, steadfast in our sort of criticisms and, um, of, of, of the government's failures, um, to handle the pandemic and not necessarily pin the blame on some, you know, I know in the case of Byron Bay, there was that, um, on one of the things,
2: um, that guy was definitely a dickhead. <laughs>
0: yeah. He was definitely, um, he was definitely like a, um, Yeah, he was definitely an example of an individual who's clearly should be condemned (laughs) and did the wrong thing. But it's clearly, but he alone is not the responsible for the entire mess that we're in for COVID. It is people, the people who are in positions of power. And I think, as socialists and for the left, that's where our anger should be focused towards.
2: That's right. Don't don't get distracted by the scapegoats. But yeah, like a lot of people are able to take a step back and just be able to see what's going on here. But it is amazing. Like, there should be absolute fury against the government for this situation. But, you know, like, the usual people who are upset about the government, they're annoyed. But I don't get the sense that there's this huge, you know, social fury at the government for this. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Just... Yeah. Yeah. I think there's
0: probably a level of sort of anger but I guess there's also like one of the kind of challenges um I think that the actor's kind of movement is sort of facing at this sort of period is it's quite we're sort of in a bit of a disempowered kind of situation because right now most of the states are in lockdown including Victoria although hopefully the lockdown will end around I mean, next Friday, <laughs> and yes, um, we're sort of, uh, a lot, for a lot of people on, you know, on the left or people who are critical of the government, it's really, like, hard to sort of organise in the midst of a pandemic where we're not necessarily, you know, we're subject to sort of lockdown restrictions, and then on a level or a certain level, a lot of the, um, a good section of the left, you know, thinks that these health restrictions are actually kind of necessary. So I think there's, there's that, that's, I think, a, a bit of the the challenge, yeah, I think, in terms of tapping
2: into the anger. It's hard, it's hard to gauge what the feeling is, I guess, because, you know, like, I guess part of it is that we can't organise in order to have mass rallies and, um, you know, show, you know, symbolic anger at the government. But also, we, we don't know what's really going on out there because we just don't get to talk to the same number of people. We don't attract people from the street to our stalls and our marches. So, yeah, maybe, it, you know, that's a good barometer of public opinion and <laughs> we don't really have that. But, um, going back, um, maybe concluding a bit of this sort of discussion
0: where we sort of just gave a bit of an overview of some of our different sorts on, um, different kind of things that are kind of happening in the world politically. Um, one sort of positive thing that is kind of interesting is Morrison's sort of approval ratings are actually going down a bit from some recent yeah, sort bit. of polls. <laughs> um, I mean, the, I mean, it's, it, it does feel that, you know, every time there's sort of a scandal that hits sort of Morrison, he seems to manage to, uh, escape it unscathed. Um, so he, he, he's, um, but it does seem to me that he is in a bit of a mess and, um, he, a hole he can't actually get himself out of. Uh, regardless, I probably think that the federal, um, the liberals are probably likely to win the next election, but, <laughs> um, that's, um, that's due to the part I think that the ALP are not necessarily, you know, uh, have offered an alternative or even offered the le- sense that they would probably, that they would win.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yep. They're not, they're, they don't project out sort of, they, they don't have a grand vision of society that sort of inspires confidence. They, they're just basically liberal's light. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe
0: we'll, um, because we're getting on to, I guess, our first interview for the program, um, I'd like to maybe play a quick, I'll play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and it's, just about, and it's around 7.14 AM. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away
3: here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed.
0: All right, you're listening to um, Green Left um, Radio. Um, For our first um, interview... on the line, we have Alan Jennings. Um, now, Alan Jennings ha- is a regular writer for Green Left, um, re- frequently commenting on um, areas related to Latin America and also Myanmar, which we previously had him on the program for. But today, we're going to be interviewing him um, about politics in Nicaragua. Um, he just recently wrote an article um, for Green Left, kind of giving a bit of a summary, I guess, of some of the current kind of political developments in Nicaragua, and um, Alan has also had the benefit of, um, having lived in Nicaragua for a number of years. And also, I think he was also had the experience of being an eyewitness and almost, um, and part, um, in supporting, um, the Nicaragua revolution back in 1989. Um, so yeah, good morning, Alan.
1: Morning, Jacob. How are
0: you? Yeah,
2: I'm good. Morning, Alan. It's Felix here.
3: Hi, Felix.
1: All right, so maybe
0: to start off um, the discussion, um, Alan, um, I guess drawing from your um, recent article for Green Left, I guess for our listeners' sort of benefit, can you give us a can you start off us off by giving a bit of a background and an overview of politics in Nicaragua, and then we can sort of move on to some of the current sort of polit- key political developments that have happened? Sure, um, you
1: know, like any country, it's a long and uh, convoluted history and quite. Uh quite complex but but in in summary um, you know the last century in Nicaragua was controlled by the United States um, and that's really critical to its whole history which um, you know we'll go on to talk about more but um, you know the United States just invaded the country in 1912 um, occupied the country for a number of years and then set up a dictatorship in 1933. Um, which happened to be the uh, the president was the head of the army, and so Somoza and his two sons ran the country, uh, for 40 odd years, um, as a you know, US backed dictatorship through the, through the last century until it was, um, got so unpopular that it was overthrown by, uh, the, um uh, uh, a popular revolution led by the uh, Sandinista National Liberation Front, usually called the Sandinistas, um, in 1979. So, 79, 42 years ago, is when um, this revolution happened. Um, and it was really an amazing thing. Um, you know, this remember, this was the time of the Cold War. We had examples of socialist countries, supposedly, in, in um, you know, Europe and, you know, Russia. A Soviet Union, but this was this was quite different. Um, and they did amazing things. I mean, they, they really inspired a lot of people and, and helped the poor in, in the kind of, um, the distributing land. A lot of the land was owned by Somoza, and that was taken and distributed to the those who'd worked the land. They focused on health and education. In fact, the literacy campaign in 1980 was regarded as the most successful literacy campaign in the history of the world, not just Nicaragua. Um, and so it became really uh, an inspiring revolution. Um, and those of us on the left were very much inspired by it and went, went there to support it. Um, but, of course, this didn't make the United States very happy. Um, firstly, that they'd lost one of their, you know, one of their countries in Latin America. And secondly... Um, it became an example for others and they thought this revolution might uh, expand and spread and so they began to fund a, a counter revolution um and uh what many people would remember and and even if you don't know much about Nicaragua you probably remember this the the contra war against the, the sandinista revolution was 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 at the top of the news for a while in the 80s when um when the United States funded disgruntled and opportunist uh, Nicaraguans to undermine the revolution, you know, by uh, mining, uh, you know, places, blowing up uh, schools, and 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 generally making it difficult for the country to run. And in fact, thirty thousand people were killed during this this period. And in the end, um, the, the Nicaraguan government to defend their revolution had to um, bring in military service and, and that wasn't very popular. And, uh, and, and in 1990, when this was 10 years after the revolution, um, the, they had elections and surprisingly, surprisingly to everybody, the, the Sandinistas lost. Um, it was a close election, but they lost to a, a cobbled together US backed coalition, um, which, um, won the elections in 1990. And even more surprisingly, I suppose, the Channinists gave up power. Uh, probably the first time that any government has taken power through arms, through revolution, and given up through elections, um, because they, I think most of the people in Nicaragua just wanted to end that low-intensity war that the United States um, waged. Hmm.
0: And I guess that gets into, I guess, um, the next um, kind of question... Um, which exists following kind of defeat of, um, the Sandinistas and, um, or the FSLN in 1990, um, in the electoral sphere. Um, of course they, I, I'm kind of interested in knowing, I guess, about two kind of aspects because there were the main kind of op- opposition, um, in that sort of period from 1990 to, um, 2007, as you sort of note in your article. But of course they returned to power, on back in 2007. So I also want to kind of know what has been the legacy of that government as well and its contradiction.
1: Um, well, yeah, the, the Sandinistas. I, mean, I should mention that Daniel Ortega, who was who led the Sandinistas and led the, that was the president during this period of, of the revolution in the 1980s, um, stayed as as head of the the, the party. And the the efforts the Sandinistas, even though at that stage they were still. Quite popular. Like I say, they lost elections, the post elections they're still quite popular because Nicaraguans um, are very political, and they were even more politicized during the revolution. And the mass movements, the workers, the, the women's movement, uh, rural workers, were still very organized and very supportive of, of, the, of the directions of, the, of the, what really is a socialist government. Um, and in opposition. They, the Sandinistas, maintained that support and their links with these mass movements. And so they still had quite a lot of support in opposition. And so they were in opposition from 1990, when they lost the elections, to 2007, which is, what, 16, 17 years later, when they won again. But I should say, during this period, um, Daniel Ortega... um, yeah, there were some con- non contradictions, but I mean, he got involved in protecting himself. He was still a member of parliament. Um, and he, one thing, one thing, he was accused of uh, sexual abuse of his stepdaughter. And to protect him from going to court, he made a pact with the right, with government, with uh, the government in the right, right at the time and basically said, look, I, you protect me and I'll protect you from your corruption, and started to make these alliances and pacts which protected him and kept him away from um, the courts. And this was the first signs of, basically, Ortega would do anything to stay in power. And that happened through this opposition period. So you had this sort of contradiction where they were still supported, the Sandinistas, but Daniel Ortega himself was seen to be... um,
0: you know, dodgy, to say the least. Mm. And I guess going into maybe the second kind of part of the question, um, re- since the... Are you still there, Alan? Yes. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, sorry, 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 you kind of dropped out. Um, no. What um, I guess, what can you tell us since um, you've given um, a good kind of explanation, I guess, of the first part, what, what can you guess tell us since their return to power, what has actually been the legacy of that government?
1: Um, you mean since they came came back to power in 2007? Yes. Um, yeah, well, they, they, like I say, because they had this, um, uh, uh, popular support, you know, a, a fairly high percentage, let's say 30-40% of the population to support the same so they, they, um, um, you know, won elections in 2007 and have won elections, um, consistently. 2011 and 2016, um, since then, and going to elections again uh, later this year in a few months' time. Um, Like I say, their legacy is, yeah, they still have a a population who are largely politicised, quite organised and, I have to say, willing to go to the streets and um, throw out a dictatorship if, if need be. Um, and over this period of time, um, Ortega um, and his partner, his wife um, Rosario Murillo, has become more repressive um, and more exclusive of any form of opposition, even within their own party. And so, they, bit by bit, and I suppose more recently, more more repressive and more um, purging basically anybody who could threaten their their power um, and in, in I mean at 2018 it came to a head really when um, student protests were um, smashed by really pro-sandinista thugs and it really showed um, and 300 people were killed in those in those protests in 2018. And it really showed the true colours of the of Ortega. I'd say the Sandinistas, but Ortega um, showed his true colours that you know he's prepared to do anything to to stay in power. Um, yeah. So and 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 more recently, um, you've had this year um, a creation of a law which basically says anybody who opposes the government is treasonous and will be imprisoned for that. And he's imprisoned basically everybody who could be his opposition in the coming elections. Hmm. Um so yeah, that's where we are now where you've got coming up elections and they're basically um have imprisoned anybody who, who may stand against them. Um and it's likely that the Sandinistas um Ortega and Mourilla will win again. Hmm.
0: Um, Felix had a question he wanted to kind of ask.
2: Yeah, it's um very, that's very interesting, Alan. Thanks. Um yeah, like, it's obviously they've changed a lot since they handed voluntarily handed power after the election loss in 1990. But... Um, yeah. And you know, it's horrifying to hear how repressive and authoritarian they've become. But, uh like, uh, do you have a sense of, like, what the politics, the left-right type of politics um, yeah. that parties is? Have they shifted to the right at, at, in part of becoming authoritarian?
1: Yeah, well, that's... I mean, it's really... Hard question. I mean, for a start, um, you still have mm. the United States um, doing their best to get rid of Ortega, which, which is a sign of um, uh, that the politics of the Ortega government are uh, still not pro-U.S. It's not not right-wing, not pro-U.S. and and still an enemy of the United States. So that gives you some indication that. Um, it's, the United States is not happy with with the with the regime, uh, with with the government. But um, I would class them as m- maybe not Stalinist, um, but certainly um, uh, authoritarian populist. Um, populist in the sense that they I, I I wouldn't call their policies socialist anymore. They Especially Rosario, the choose now vice president, is well known for giving, let's say, giving gifts, giving um, roofs for houses, giving uh, food, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, populist policies of, of giving things to people um, to maintain their, their popularity and support. Um, so it's really not as clear-cut as, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're still socialist, um, but they're still probably normally, especially in their international um, stance, um, leftist and uh, very much in the camp of Venezuela and Cuba in Latin America um, and are supported by Russia and China in, in, in when, when it comes to, you know, um, potential U.S. intervention. So you know, you could, it's seen probably externally as still a left-wing government, but um, to me, it, it's not. It's not black and white. It's not as clear as you know. It's it's a it's a, it's um it's a it's a left-wing government. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It they really is they haven't I would say, like, authoritarian, populist. they have any um, introduced, like land reform or
2: anything like that? It's really no.
1: Irritating. Well, I mean, they have really no. um i mean I, we know personally people involved in 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 that i mean that they made a complete mess of the land reform because in the land reform of the revolution which is uh, 40 odd years ago they never actually finalized titles for land and they go land to, to people and a lot of that land has eventually been as as you know through this period of right-wing government you know the, the the those who left and lost their land in the past come back and reclaim their land, and so it really is um, it's really messy the the ownership of land, and and their focus on education and health is really dwindled, and just looking at the development status and the figures of the country, um, it has really plummeted in terms of um, levels of poverty, and um, Even the levels of education and and healthcare um, have plummeted, Um, and so you know, obviously, they're not focusing on what they did before.
2: Yeah, Um, so they. um, So the the base of support that they have is is largely sort of nostalgia from the the uh, the good period of the Sandinistas, is it or like?
1: Well, well, you think about it. I mean, we know a lot of people who will still vote Sandinista, and they say, "Look, we know that you know Daniel Ortega is." Is rotten. But the history of the country, when you've got a a country which has been hounded and controlled by the United States, the party that led the revolution is the Sandinistas. And we've seen this in many other countries. I mean, even something like Zimbabwe and and other countries like that, when you get a revolution and you get a revolutionary leader who is responsible, really, for the. the, the overthrow of a US-backed dictator, and that legacy will never disappear. Um, and irrespective, in some cases, of what they do after that, um, they will maintain a certain level of support because of that. And what? what and, and also, what is the what is the what is the alternative? Um, the alternative in Nicaragua is a pro-US, you know, back to the um, you know US-controlled government. Um, so it's it's a really difficult one. Um, as I ended that article, it's like the Nicaraguans are really between a, a rock and a hard place when it comes to choosing their government because they've got a corrupt, repressive, nominally left-wing um, leadership, um, um, and the alternative is a, a pro-US, you know, um, government. I sure. want
0: to, I wanted to sort of ask, um, I'll go a bit more into kind of detail of that because we've been having a good sort of, um, discussion, um, you know, of, of criticizing, um, the gov of, of the government's kind of approach and also the repression. But I guess the, you've, um, pointed out accurately the issue of, of US imperialism. I guess what can you, can you tell us, I guess, in a bit more detail, about the nature of the opposition to the ruling government and the backing they received of the US, like what is the political program they are wanting to implement within Nicaragua and why is what is the basis of U United States kind of continued interest of Nicaragua? Now, obviously that's almost like a self explanatory kind of question, but I'm sort of interested in the kind of condition specific to Nicaragua that makes um the United States so interested in, um, in continuing to try and interfere and overthrow the existing government?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, Nicaragua has been a obsession, if you like, um, along with Cuba, um, for, you know, hundred years. Um, in fact, right when they invaded Nicaragua a hundred years ago, 110 years ago, um, the aim was to, um, put a canal through the country, um, as an alternative to the Panama Canal, um, and they still have aims of doing that. But that's not so much um, the issue. I mean, Nicaragua is in the United States' backyard, as they see it. And, you know, um, so close to the country, so close to the United States, um, is where massive profits can be made when you have a U.S.-controlled government Um, particularly in in the area of labour-intensive, you know, production, particularly fruit and, you know, any labour-intensive production. So the United States still aims to to get control of Nicaragua, um, as they do every other country in Central America and and South America. I mean, this hasn't changed. Um, But the methods they're using now is probably not an invasion that usually using um, different forms of support for um, pro-US groups in the country. Um, And they're doing this exactly the same as they're doing in Venezuela and uh, Bolivia and any other left-wing government they might try to do. And and what they're doing in Nicaragua is funding particular sort of media organisations and youth organisations and democracy organisations, NGOs, um, through millions and millions and millions of dollars to, let's say, train, in inverted commas, train them to be, you know, fight for democracy and all, all that sort of stuff, which is really their way of getting into the political, you know, elements, you know, political aspect of the country and eventually, um, taking power through, you know, uh, you know, a US-backed coalition. Which they still have hope to do, um, and and they you know there's very clear um, evidence of um, U.S. aid um, going into millions and millions of dollars, particularly into um, the pockets of opposition groups. Um, and uh, the the coalition that defeated the Sandinistas back in 1990 was led by uh, Violeta Chamorro. Now, Violeta Chamorro. Um, was the first female president of the country, and uh, her daughter now is is seen as the um, most likely uh, person to, uh, by the US, to 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 overthrow the, this this current um, the government. Yeah, so, and, uh, so she's been getting heaps and heaps of uh, media and uh, support from USA um, in an attempt to to um, to to win back win back there <laughs> there you know win back
2: what they see as theirs yeah that's interesting the way that uh you know, in a lot of the history that you've been just going through with with Nicaragua is mirrored in a lot of other countries in South America like I was thinking of uh, Haiti for a lot of yep. that, the U S invasion in I think it was 1915 or something in Haiti rather than 1912 in Nicaragua and then the puppet dictators that have been put up um, but the, you, the um uh the daughter of the former leader being um fated for power next is similar to in um i think peru where uh kaiko fujimori was yep, the...
1: yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's
2: interesting the way that these things these themes keep popping up hmm.
1: well uh, that yeah yeah the, i mean they 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 have to pick a person who you know is sort of let's say clean um, and uh, and has some sort of link with, I don't know, some you know, pure democratic supposedly
2: yeah, um, filial, filial ties. But um, I think we have to wrap it up now. But, yeah. Uh, thanks.
0: Yeah. Well, Alan, um, I just wanted. To, um, well, we're going to wrap it up, but I just wanted to have any uh, give you an opportunity to make any guests final kind of comments you might want to make, and you can even refer to your article in Green Left for people to read.
3: <laughs> well,
1: I mean, I I mean it's so hard to have a revolution, left-wing revolution, in Latin America or anywhere, really, in the world at the moment, but particularly in so close to the United States. And you asked Cuba about this. I mean, they have been struggling against um, U.S. embargo, U.S. invasions, attempts to assassinate Fidel and all that over, you know, 60 years now. The Nicaraguans didn't make it, didn't quite make it. I mean, I in fact went to Cuba after after the Nicaraguan Prime Ministers lost in nineteen ninety and a minister there said, Look a minister Cuban minister said, Look, the Nicaraguans shouldn't have had elections because in this part of the world you cannot have elections on an equal, you know, a level playing field. With the United States involved, it's not a level Playing field, so don't give them the chance. And it makes you think, you know, you know, maybe that was correct, but you know, you you want they want to have elections, but in a, in a place like Central America or Latin America, it's it's very hard to have open and fair elections with that um, yeah, imperialist I'm bully the yeah. in the north. So. Um, yeah no it 's very hard to have um, to have successful uh, revolution in the united States backyard
0: hmm. Well, um, thanks for kind of ending on that point. I mean, I'll just make one quick comment, but one of the interesting sort of things counters to that sort of point as well about elections is the experiences of Bolivia and Venezuela have also kind of shown that left-wing governments can, um, in a sense, use elections as a form of kind of mobilisation in defence of the government against US sort of interference. Although that's kind of like an ongoing kind of struggle as we kind of, Discuss regularly whenever we discuss the situation of Bolivia and Venezuela on this program.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, they're trying to do it through electoral processes, and you know, let's see how they go. It's 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 a really hard road to to plow, um, and um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a constant struggle, and it's been going on for more than a hundred years.
0: Right. Well, um, thank you very much, Alan. I think you've given like a very good sort of overview of um, everything in Nicaragua. And and in fact, I actually kind of learned a lot um, from the interview we kind of just did. So yeah, thank you very much for being on our program. Yeah,
1: me too. Thanks, Alan. No worries. Anytime. See you later, guys. See See you.
0: All right, we we'll just um, um, speaking to um, Alan Jennings, um, giving a bit of an interview and discussion about um, politics in Nicaragua. And, of course, if you look up on greenleft.org.au and check out the international section, you can have a bit of a read of his latest article for Green Left, which was um, the basis of what we kind of drew the interview for. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to thank or, um I just might go play um, a, qu- a few announcements and um, we'll go probably go on to the next part of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID.
2: To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
1: I really want to see my mum.
2: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
1: having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play.
0: I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please
1: get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated.
0: A message from Victoria's Community Sector.
1: A 3CR supporter.
0: All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, We just have a few minutes before um, we're scheduled to have our next guest on the program. Um, so I thought I'd just give a quick kind of news um, story. Um, basically, this is actually an article I just wrote um, recently for Green Left, but basically it's reporting on the student staff campaign against the Robert Menzies Institute at Melbourne University. And basically, um, the University of Melbourne is planning to establish a Robert Menzies Institute, um, stated to open in November. Um, an open letter stopped the Robert um, Menzies Institute signed by many described the management's plan as an attempt by the right wing of the Liberal Party and and their supporters to produce um purchase a space of public and scholarly influence in Australian universities. Um, the Manzi's um, Research in- Institute, in partnership with the university, has been given more um, than seven million from the federal government to create a new the new institute. The, the centre is affiliated to the Liberal Party. And of course, this happens as the same time as the man as management is pushing ahead with um, staff cuts despite an 8 million surplus last year. And, of course, the university um, says the institute will commemorate Robert Menzies' legacy. Menzies was um, um, the, um, Australia's longest-serving um, conservative prime minister. But, of course, as the kind of open letter points out, Menzies was no he- hero. He was a staunch supporter of the white Australian policy and apartheid rule in South Africa. He allowed First Nations land to become the test site for atomic bonds. He authorised troops to join imperialist wars on the Korean Peninsula against rebels in the Malayan Emergency and the Vietnam War. And so, yeah, the campaign group is, um, currently organizing as much as possible against this, um, and it's being supported by the education departments of the GSA and the University of Melbourne Student Union, along with the National Union of Students. And of course, a rally has been called for August 18th, um, which I think, unfortunately, I think probably will be postponed because I think the lockdown went, I'm not sure when the lockdown yeah I don't think the lockdown will be ending by then unfortunately, so the rally will probably be postponed so i'll hope I'll keep an a date on the end, but you can read um the article on green Left, um to get a bit of a sense of more of the background so yeah anyway we'll, go, we'll just go I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. um you' are listening to Green Left Radio.
2: Radio
3: for the workers, by the workers, since
1: 1976. G'day
2: Alex. Hello. Hello, this is Felix speaking from 3CR here. I'm in the studio with Jacob. How are you doing?
3: I'm good.
2: So, um, yeah, like uh, obviously we got you on because the new IPCC report has just been released, and uh, it's a bit of a bombshell. Uh, what are your thoughts about it?
3: Look, I've got a number of thoughts about it. I, I mean it's unexpected and sorry, it's unsurprising the, the the main conclusions because it's based on the science which has been available for some time. But it is certainly very sobering and compelling to put it all together in one in such a, in one cohesive package. That just shows very clearly that climate change not only is real, not only is caused by humans, and this is uh, you know, clearly been said um, you know, unambiguously uh, in, a, in a way that hasn't been hasn't been said by the IPCC uh, before. Uh, so all those things are, are dramatic and compelling. Um, in addition, there is the, uh, the question of that the IPCC says it is still possible for us to actually turn around. There is a window of opportunity for us to Reduce our emissions and potentially stabilise the climate uh, in a way that is not going to be catastrophic for for our society. And then the third point I would make, I would make is just the, the sort of dismal response by not only the Morrison government but even the ALP. So I guess we can go through those in turn, but those, those, are, those are summary of my thoughts on it.
2: Yeah. What do you think? Um, like, obviously, we 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 are obviously all aware climate change is accelerating. It's a massive problem. It's like we're looking at apocalyptic scenarios, the destruction of huge amounts of our ecosystem and um, and communities. Um, so, like, definitely it's not a surprise in that sense. I was mainly surprised by it, probably in your second point, with the language that they used about just how dire the situation is. What do you think about the mainstream media representation of this report? Like, I have noticed... In a few areas, like in The Guardian, there was a, a major headline, irreversible, like these words here, that sort of, I, I feel like they're transitioning, like this, this is just the impression that I got from reading a couple of these headlines, but transitioning from the, um, the idea that this is something that we can deal with, maybe down the track, to suddenly, oh, it's too late, it's, uh, it's inevitable, it's irreversible, we're all, we're all screwed, so this is it. Do you think that there is a sort of defeatist attitude that's greeted this report?
3: I think that the first thing in answering that question everybody's got to be aware we are at a knife edge um you know the, the time for action really was you know 20 or 30 years ago and we squandered that time as a as a you know global society um because of you know the the capitalist rulers of that society but nevertheless as a society we've squandered the time that we had which means that all of our options from here on in are dangerous there is nothing which is sort of safe and easy um but as, as I read, and I'm not, obviously not a scientist myself, but I, I, pay as close attention as I can to what scientists are saying. And I don't think it is simply blind deciding, uh, bright deciding. I think it is, I think it is, you know, the best science is saying to us that there is still time to actually turn things around so things are not, uh, it's not irreversible yet. It's not, uh, it's not, you know, an absolute catastrophe as in hot house, hot house earth scenario yet. It will be probably quite soon. Um, yeah, and 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 you know, from from that point of view, it means that um, you know, yes, I mean, the, you know, the main in the mainstream, there has been a transition towards, um, you know, towards sort of a sense of you know, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It is there is too late. There's nothing we can do. Um, that is that is a big problem. And I think it, I think it's those people who say, that doomism is a is the latest version of denialism. That is correct. And so I think that. There is a job for progressives to actually cut through that sort of doomsday scenario. Um, certainly, I think the people who say, oh, it's all over. It's all terrible. I think those people are mistaken, according to the best science from today. But you've got to say that within a, within a context of we are at a nice edge. It is serious and it is very urgent.
2: Do you feel like there's going to be any sort of difference with this report as there have been with... The previous reports and also like we're we're getting more and more inundated with news stories from around the world and like particularly in Australia of devastating climate impacts. You know, obviously there's the massive heat wave in North America, the the devastating flooding in Germany and other parts of Europe like Belgium and in China and then flooding in India as well. And um, just freakish weather all over the planet, not to mention the bushfires in Australia that we had at the start of 2020 do you think that there's any prospect of sort of a like a a, a wake up like i feel that the people the communities e- even a lot of working class people that are you know said to be dismissive of these issues um that they've they they are aware of what's going on and they 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 have their eyes open about the um the dangers but do you think that from a um like a like not necessarily government, but a, a sort of the um, the zeitgeist of the of the ruling class in some ways. Maybe News Limited that there there is a switch going on, uh, either because of this um, IPCC report or due to the the frequency of weather events.
3: Look, I, I think that I think the reality of climate change, which as I said, is not some hypothetical future scenario. It is a reality happening right now. It is staring us in the face. You look at the last month's extreme weather in the northern summer, as you just referred to, uh, it is impossible for, for, to, deny, to deny those things or to ignore those things. So, of course, there is going to be... There has been a change in the in the narrative from the media and the, the ruling class more generally, um, and, and that will continue, I think. But I also think we need to look at some plain facts, like to just take one recent example, and this is based on United States media, but some analysis basically showed that the the ten minutes in space by Jeff Bezos received as much coverage in one day
2: yeah, yeah, as the
3: entire that. climate issue received all last <laughs> year. You know, that's like so that's just like that just gives you a little sort of sense about what we're up against. I think the other thing to remember, only two years ago, twenty nineteen, the International Monetary Fund released a report which said all around the world, the governments of the world are, you know, still I mean as of you know, two years ago I don't think I haven't seen any sort of substantial change. The governments of the world are spending literally trillions. It's sort of between four and six trillion dollars, trillion with a T, in subsidies for fossil fuels. Now you've got to be um, you've got to understand that report in its in its context because what that report was including was every country that doesn't charge a carbon tax, they are basically counting that as a subsidy. So, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, I mean, like in sense it's not trillions of literal cash handed out to the corporations, but it still has a substantial amount of money in Australia as well, billions, you know, over 10 billion, literally handed out free money to the fossil fuel corporation. And it's not like Australia, I mean, Australia is, you know, one of the worst, if not the worst in terms of climate policy, but it's not like Australia is some unique situation where we're the only country in the world which is subsidising the fossil fuel companies. This is part of mainstream capitalism all around the world. Um, and, you know, so, so those are the sobering realities and the sobering facts. And I think, like, in a sense, like, that's what – yes, of course the narrative is going to change. It's going to be you – know, climate change is less deniable um, and – yeah, and, and all governments are, are forced to respond to that. But, you, like, you look at, say, Joe Biden. I mean, like compared to Scott Morrison, he looks brilliant. But, um, you know, yeah, one of the Biden policies just recently was like they're going to make sure that... Uh, it's not even a, even a binding target. It's just going to be like an aspiration that half of cars sold in the United States by 2030 are going to be not with an internal combustion engine. I mean, in my opinion, that is just not... An adequate policy for the scale of the emergency that we're facing. And really, even, even Europe, you know, even the countries around the world that are, that are doing, you know, on the face of it better than Australia, there still is a denialism, not in the sense of taking a formal position of denying science, but a different version of denialism where they're not putting forward the policies that are required. And that is because, in my opinion, it's because fossil fuels are baked into the, you know the fabric of, of a capitalist economy. So if we actually want to solve this problem, you can't look to changing narratives or changing policies of the ruling class. There needs to be a rebellion from the rank and file from the ordinary people. There needs to be a people power revolt against those in power. Otherwise, there will certainly be changing narratives, but there won't be changing policies that's setting up fast enough to actually avert us from the crisis.
2: Yeah, I was reading an article the other day that uh, described Australia as a government that has... It, it could reasonably be um, described as, as state capture by the fossil fuel industries. Like, it's, there's a revolving door between the um, not just uh, government representatives, but also public servants that go in and out of fossil fuel boards and um, consultancies and back again. And so, there's, there's absolutely no reason why anybody from the rural, ruling class would be interested in, in actually solving the problem or what they get involved in is greenwashing where they they make the noises that sound like they're doing something to placate the the electoral base and then they move on to something else and I think the pandemic has been very useful for this because it's a it is another sort of apocalyptical um, s- situation that's easy to distract from this sort of slow burn that's happening in the background of climate change um, yeah so,
3: becoming increasing their fast burn yeah that's I, right
2: um, do you think that uh, there, there's a, a lot of good scope for activism and for the basically the working class, the people on the ground, uh, communities that are obviously going to bear the brunt of all the effects and that already are. Do you think that people are a bit able to link up in a way that um, that, that actually does um, wrest power away from the intransigent um, leadership?
3: I certainly think that is possible, and in fact, I think that is our only hope. And I think the people that dismiss the possibility, like it's very easy to look around. Okay, the last you know, um, uh, you know, you look over recent decades, and the level of activism in Australia hasn't exactly been high. We've had obviously a lot of high points, but you know, but if, but if you just looked at history, um, you would you would be able to find enough, enough evidence to be demoralised if you wanted to. But I guess if you look at the other parts of history, you can also see the evidence that it is possible for people to rise up, oftentimes very quickly, oftentimes uh, without a lot of warning. And, and I guess I, I I stick by what gives me hope is the idea that what we need to be is a, as radical as reality. And this is a long-time slogan of the left, and I think it's basically very pertinent for the for the period that we're in. We need to put we need to put forward the policies and the demands that are radical enough to meet the the, the serious reality of the, of the global heating problem you know, catastrophe that we're facing um, and also have the confidence that, that people will respond precisely because it is in accordance with that reality.
0: And I guess that gets into the kind of um, sort of last question we sort of wanted to kind of end on is, I guess, the kind of implications, I guess, of this report um, and going um, following on from the kind of last point that we have to kind of be as radical as kind of reality. What um, What is kind of your response to the question that, you know, the implications of this report is that we need to fight for I guess, a, a, a transformation of uh, a, a moving away from capitalism uh, for, a, uh, for an eco-socialist sort of transformation of, of society. And I guess, what are your kind of comments on that, you know, as a, as a Socialist Alliance um, National co cabinet and also what are the kind of type of measures and solutions we need to be um, fighting for in the immediate term?
3: Look, when, I, when you're asking that question, I guess one thing that immediately springs to mind, I mean, I've been now a socialist activist for a bit over 30 years, and I remember 30 years ago, people, environmentalists, would make the argument, oh, we don't have enough time to fundamentally change the economic system, the climate, the, the, the environmental crisis and the climate crisis is too serious, we just don't have time, we just need to work for measures today to make improvement. And of course, in one sense, that's true. You can't wait for a revolution and just think everything, everything's going to be solved after that. We need to fight as hard as possible right now today for every single uh, step forward, no matter how small. any mine, you know, um, you know, whatever specific uh, um, uh, measures will make an improvement. We need to fight as hard as we can for those today. But at the same time, alongside those those fights and those campaigns, we need to organise for a fundamental transformation of society and the economy. And I, I think this is just. Born out by experience. It's like, it, it, if, you, if you look honestly at, you know, the, the last several decades, um, we cannot afford to keep on going with the, um, you know, with the sort of business as usual. And I think you look at the commentary of people like Naomi Klein uh, and, you know, in, in her argumentation for a Green New Deal, quite a radical version of a Green New Deal, she's made arguments along the lines of, and in fact also her argument that, you know, that capitalism is the problem. Um, that we need to actually link environmental, you know, climate action with things like, uh, job security, housing security, in general, um, you know, welfare for the, for the, for the population. And those things need to go hand in glove. And those things, when you, I mean, just taking climate action seriously is in itself a, the implications of that are a, a challenge to the capitalist system. But certainly when you link it with those social welfare measures, which I think are also critical, that, is unambiguously a challenge to the to the capitalist system, and we need to have we need to recognise implications of that. And alongside our day to day campaigning, like for example, Stop Adani, we also need to be advocating for and organising for that's the key word organising for uh, you know, a, a radical system change in society. And you know, lots of climate strikers will carry the sign, you know, system change, not climate change. Um, that's that's a great slogan. That is what we need to do. And we need to not just hold the signs we need to organize for it and what that means in my view is getting involved in those organizations like social sciences is one example uh, that actually are organizing for a fundamental change in, in 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 society and I think that this isn't uh, I mean I think you can always advocate there's always that has always been desirable from the from the point of view of what would be good for society but right now I think it's absolutely essential like if we don't do that um, we're not going to Solve the problems that we that we're seeing that the IPCC report has has underlined.
2: Yeah, just to emphasise that point, actually, I think that's that's a really good uh, point that you made there. But um, it is one of the one of the main tactics of uh, the ruling class is to um, that they, they just the technocratic solutions to climate change, which you were speaking of earlier about um, switching over to electric cars and things, um, like. In that they are problematic in themselves and they don't rise to meet the challenge of climate change, but also they're just easily played by the ruling class where they can wedge the community in terms of saying that it'll destroy jobs and you know ruin livelihoods and it's uh, it's new and scary and it'll be controlled by some pointy-headed elite in the cities that don't understand your way of life. And so that's why I think that it's so important for the... Uh, Climate change movement to embrace the people who will be affected at all levels from the, starting from the workers, the workers who are, they need to survive. They live in communities that have been based around fossil fuel, fuel industries. You know, obviously they need jobs and they need meaningful jobs as well, not just like be retrained in, you know, software engineering or something. So I think that by taking the whole of society approach and to transform the economy as well as our fossil fuel industries all at once is the only practical way to do it. It'll be because we just face defeat at every turn otherwise. Um, we have to sort of uh, start ending the interview, but do you have any other uh, final thoughts about this, Alex?
3: Look, I just think that people need to uh, remember the the point that it is actually we still have time to change it and that you know we need to sort of put our efforts towards that. The thing that the the big fossil fuel corporations want nothing more than for people to feel demoralised and like there's nothing they can do, and the reality is it's evidence-based. There is plenty we can do to, to change things, and so we need, need to give it our best shot.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Alex, um, for having this discussion with us.
3: Thanks for being... Thanks for hosting the show. Appreciate it, Alex. All right, well...
0: Um, we were just um, um, having a discussion with Alex Bainbridge, um, national co convener of um, Socialist Alliance, and we were just having a bit of a kind of discussion with him about what the kind of uh, about the implications of the recent, I think it was IPCC
2: report, IPCC report, the international um, panel on climate change.
0: Hmm. So yeah, um, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and we'll move on to the Green Left activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
2: Well, if you listen to three, say oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say oh,
0: clap
1: your hands. If you listen to three, say oh, I yes, so know where you are. If
2: you listen to three, say oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say oh, clap your hands. If you listen to three, say
1: oh, clap your hands. Well, check out the happy vibe. And subscribe if you
0: listen to 3CR. Uh, what? Who the hell is that? Flap ears! What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio.
1: Flap Get out! Get the hell
0: out of here now. I know who Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, a lot of, most of the events, I think, as far as we know, um, are going to be all online that I'm going to be advertising, um, mainly because we're not sure, sh- um, lockdown should be ending probably next Friday, but of course the activist movement hasn't necessarily adjusted, um, their calendars, um, in response to kind of all the kind of restrictions, especially with the lockdown extension. So the first kind of event, um, what a highlight is there's going to be an online forum organized by Sydney Refugee Action Collective, which is, um, or I think it's Refugee Action Co- Coalition. Um, and it's going to be an online forum, Afghanistan and Australia, Refugees and the Unfolding Crisis. That's going to be happening at 6pm. And then on Tuesday, August the 17th, there's going to be an online forum, Workers' Rights and the Pandemic Crisis, um, which is going to be happening on Tuesday, August the 17th, 6.30. And then on Wednesday, the 18th of August, there's going to be a rally. No Menzies Institute. Oh, well, no, there isn't. I don't think this will likely to happen. So I'll just, um, we'll see what happens because, um, we're going to still be in lockdown then. Um, and then, um, there is also an online forum, um, on Wednesday, August the 18th, um, housing for people, not for profit at 7.30 PM, Wednesday, August the 18th. And that's been organized by the anti-poverty network. And then, um, on, um, I think on, There's going to be, I think, on Thursday, August the 19th, there's going to be a book launch, Shine a Panic, and I think that is happening via Zoom, Um, and I think you just have to look up the Facebook Facebook, um, of the new International Bookshop to kind of get the um, info kind of there. And then... um, The next event is there's going to be, um, um, there's going to be, um, on Tuesday, August the 24th, there's going to be an online forum organized by Green Left and Socialist Alliance at 6.30 Tuesday, August the 24th, which is titled, um, COVID-19 Pandemic, the State and the Far Right, a Left Response. And so it's going to be happening at 6.30 PM, Tuesday the 24th of August. And then some other sort of, uh, events to sort of highlight is, um, in september on september Day, there 's going to be a rally in march stop turkey 's war on the Kurds and australian silence and that 's going to be happening at two p m at the state library three two eight Swanson street in the city okay so that 's um, all the kind of events to kind of highlight. Um, just want to kind of note um, free CR still kind of depends on kind of don- um, your donation support, so want to give a bit of a plug. Um, that you know to give um to give your support for, um to FreeCR, if 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 possible, and of course Green Left um which is the affiliate of this um program is you know always looking for more supporters to keep kind of radical kind of people powered media kind of going. Um, it only co- um it um costs like five dollars a month to become a supporter of Green Left. So yeah,
2: and uh, yeah, it, Green Left is a fantastic newspaper. I like it. Pe- people should really just pick it up. Have a read of a couple of issues, because there are so many good areas covered, great um, citizen journalists, terrific commentary. You'll be amazed when you read it, just how good it is, and uh, it should be read by more people.
0: Hmm. And you can become a supporter by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Right, so I think um we might use a bit of opportunity to take a bit of a breather and maybe we'll play a bit of a a song. So I was gonna play Breathe In, Breathe Out by Filmer Plum. So yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio.
1: So I hope you feel it too.
0: You're listening to Green Left Radio. And I thought um I would kind of um for the next kind of part of the programme I thought I would um as someone who's a bit, um, who's quite into, um, film, uh, I've been, um, watching, uh, a lot of films from the Melbourne International Film Festival, um, which is currently, um, as a result of obviously the COVID kind of 19 sort of lockdowns has gone completely online. Um, so from the 5th of August, well, we're not on the 5th of August to the 22nd of August, um, you are able to kind of rent, uh, a collection of movies, um, mostly new, re- um, mostly new release movies with some, um, for, um, re, um, restore, with some restored old documentaries and films. Um, and yeah, basically it costs like $14 to rent, um, each film. So I thought I'd give a bit of a, a list of kind of films, um, that I think are worth kind of watching from a left-wing kind of perspective. And I'll give you a kind of a bit of a description of recommendations. So you can check out, um, you can check out, um, and watch these films by going on the Melbourne International Film Festival website, um, at, um MIFF dot com dot AU and um also the guidance thing, if there's any listeners outside Melbourne. Um the film festival films are available to everyone in Australia as long as you're kind of kind of willing to kind of pay. Now, getting started, um I thought so, I'll go through some of the films that I've going through the program um these are some of a a, a bit of a, a a list of kind of left wing kind of films um that i think are worth kind of watching from the film festival so the first film i want to sort of highlight is there is a doc, um, there's a documentary san rizuka peasants of the second fortress um 1971 um this is this is an old documentary that was um produced in um 1971 and now this is um a uh, this is a documentary that captures the resistance of farmers in San Rizuka, um, Jap- um, Japan. This basically con, um, chronicles the kind of ongoing struggles, um, now known as Narita. Um, and basically it, it is essentially was an incredible kind of mass movement in Japan. Um, that was basically in revolt against, um, against the attempts, um, um, of, of, uh, of, Jap- of, our capitalists to build this, um, airport, which was essentially going to dispossess uh, thousands of, of farmers um, within rural um, rural Japan. So there was a huge, massive uh, community campaign. And this documentary, which goes on for two hours and 20 minutes, um, titled San Ruzuka, Peasants of the Second Fortress, um, Capture That Struggle. As I, I would say, this is probably one of the most expiring kind of struggles in kind of Japanese sort of left history. And I think one of the interesting kind of things about this particular struggle is um, it's sort of um, it, there was a, a kind of involvement of socialist forces within that movement as well. So it's going to it should be an interesting kind of documentary to kind of watch. Um, the next kind of film to sort of highlight this is one I actually watched. Um, there's the Black Audio Film um, Collective, which is. Basically, influential um, um, British contemporary art group, the Black Audio um, Film Collective, was founded by seven black and historic artists and filmmakers in 1982. And basically, they walked um, together to basically produce poetic, experimental and political film essays and cinematic exploration. So... That includes two films, um, which is The Hardsworth Song, expired by the recent civil um, disturbances in Braham, uses archival footage and the media portrayal of the events to explore a broader picture of the black experience in post-war Britain. And then there's also Seven Songs for Malcolm X, which I watched last night through the film festival, which is actually quite an incredible one-hour kind of documentary. It has dramatic re interviews and testimonies to transverse and illuminate the life and death of re- black American revolutionary... Malcolm X, and includes um, interviews with his um, widowed wife, um, Betty Chavez, and filmmaker Spike Lee. So there's quite a lot of um, incredible, um, just having watched the kind of film, um, there's quite a lot of incredible kind of politics um, in the film that is kind of worth highlighting, and kind of really kind of reflects the kind of amazing kind of political impact that someone like Malcolm X kind of had. In fact, um, one of the sort of things that was sort of interesting to note about the documentary is, you know, it would be quite amazing if we had someone like Malcolm X, uh, today in the contemporary sort of political context. Like, to have some, like, you know, imagine having a revolutionary figure like Malcolm X who would be, you know, you would have YouTube videos of people capturing every kind of little thing he kind of, um, they said or, and, and so on. And I think, yeah, the fact that we lack a figure like Malcolm X in today's political climate, um yeah, you know, is a is a pretty is a big kind of shame. Now the next kind of document um the next film I kind of want to highlight is um there's a film called Gaza Mon Omar, the Melbourne Film Festival. This is a I haven't seen the film yet. Um I'm intending to see it, but it's a film by a Palestinian filmmaker set in Palestine. Um it's a romantic kind of drama um that is um is set in Gaza. So I think it's gonna be a very political um film. Um and then the next film is Azor. Now this is a film. Um, this is a. I a, think a, a, it's a, Technically, it is a. Um, a French and Sp- um, and Spanish. With, um, it's technically a French in France and Spanish with English subtitles, but it's actually a Switzerland, France, and Argentina kind of production. Now this is quite an interesting film. So I watched this kind of film, and it's. It's set in um, during the 1980s Argentina military kind of dictatorship. It revolves around um, a banker, uh, a Swiss kind of banker. And essentially it is a heart of darkness kind of style kind of story that I would sort of argue is kind of very revealing of kind of the inner workings of capitalism. And kind of one of the interesting sort of aspects about the film that is kind of worth highlighting Is it sort of one of those films that really kind of shows the sort of nature of fascist sort of politics? Like, i.e. it depicts a political context in 1980s where Argentina was ruled by a military dictatorship. And now, of course, the film centers on bankers, capitalists, uh, and so on. And one of the sort of interesting sort of aspects of that film is these, these groups of people that the film kind of depicts. They're completely unimpacted by the military dictatorship. In fact, the military dictatorship actually facilitates capital kind of accumulation. So I think that's a kind of interesting. The film is quite interesting in that respect, and it actually just shows how fascism is inherently pro-capitalist and is about actually, you know, even in the in the face of a dictatorship, um, capital accumulation is still allowed to go on because that's the kind of nature of the capitalist system. Um, the next kind of documentary is um, Ablaze. Now, this is a feature documentary that won't actually be available to watch until August the 20th, um, but this is a feature documentary about um, about Yorta Yorta and Wadjuri man Bill Onis, who is a prominent figure in the history of Aboriginal activism. So I think this will be a very... I think it will be a very brilliant kind of documentary kind of to watch. Um, and I think, yeah, it's definitely looks like... I think it will be... I'm definitely looking forward to kind of watching it on August the 20th. Um, and the next kind of film is The Inheritance. Um, now, this is a documentary um, about an African-American couple who um, inherits an, um, a house and they essentially... And then they turn it into a site of radical activism. And I think, yeah, this will be, uh, I think this will be an uh, interesting Gorka. I think I haven't watched it yet, but I'm kind of intending to kind of watch it um, tonight. So I think this will be, yeah. So that's a bit of the list of kind of films that I think are kind of worth highlighting from a kind of left-wing sort of perspective. But there's also countless sort of other kind of films um, available um, to watch. And so, yeah, if you're interested in kind of any of those films, uh, I definitely recommend um, checking them out. Um, So, yeah. All right. Well, um, I might just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Tim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been
0: Um so you are kind of listening you are listening to Green Left Radio and so I'll just maybe end um I just this is just a news story that just just popped up um yesterday and it's probably gonna be something that's gonna be reported um in response to guess the kind of New South Wales um kind of Sydney outbreak. Now, interesting enough, um the um so the current kind of situation in New South Wales is it is in a quite a strict kind of lockdown. Um, however, lockdown isn't clearly being applied kind of equally with particular, um, local kind of government areas, i.e., um, areas in kind of Western kind of Sydney have been kind of subject to a harsher kind of, um, lockdown than probably anyone kind of else in New South Wales. Now, a bit of a disturbing kind of trend that's kind of happening. Is essentially the government appears to be instead of like, um, implementing kind of measures that would actually curb, the, um, um, the spread. Like, for example, implementing a more, um, a more equitable kind of lockdown that actually applies to the whole state or maybe the whole kind of city where the same rules kind of for everyone or as opposed to actually implementing, um, protections of a, of a essential kind of workers, uh, as opposed to kind of, um, implementing sort of um, targeting kind of business. This goes actually back to the start of the conversation. What the New South Wales government has actually kind of um, realised, has sort of going to, is they're apparently going to be tightening rules around the COVID-19 signals bubble and people exercising as part of their renewed push to slow the spread of the Delta strain as it slowly engulfs the state. Uh, Yeah, punishing
2: the individual.
0: Yeah, (laughs) so it's essentially what the New South Wales government is. They're essentially, as opposed to implementing kind of any of the measures that actually have worked in previous sort of lockdowns, it appears they're actually just wasting um, this sort of very strict, um, the hard lockdown that they're currently implementing by just putting all the focus on police handing out punitive fines and disproportionately impacting on people of marginalised communities and people of colour. Like, if, if they, if, and it's completely contrary to actually even ensuring any, um, compliance with the lockdown. And in fact, it's, I think, in some sense, it's essentially repeating all the mistakes that the Victorian government made. Early on when they impo- um, when they implemented the hard kind of lockdown in last year we' essentially just going with, um, I, um, blaming individuals and just focusing on punitive kind of measures and then of course, what ended up happening was most of the cases ended up coming from kind of essential workers, so it wasn 't until they took stronger action on the economy um, in, like i e reducing um, you know work, um, the work that is done in essential workplaces, et etc, that they actually started to curb the virus so
2: yeah, that is. It's a. It's a. Obviously, it's a classic Victorian complaint to say that um, you know Sydney is isn't learning the lessons that we went through the the hard fought lessons from our time. But uh, in some cases, this is accurate. And I definitely think in uh, in Melbourne we were completely blindsided last year by the fact that essential workers, the housing commission flats, and this whole section of society in the in the western suburbs is just. Uh, it, it's not reached by the same messages of you know like we i know that we talked about this kind of issue with Osman Fruki the other week but um not reached by the same you know like oh yeah do the right thing it's up to everyone individually to you know do their part it, these people are living in the most sort of precarious dire circumstances where they just they need to feed themselves they have to get out and work and they have to get out and um interact with people because they're delivery drivers they're uber drivers they they work in you know meat packing or whatever it is um, and, you, you, you know, you can't just sort of moralise them to, to, like, lose their livelihoods. And in Sydney, it sounds like they're going through exactly the same process without realising the wake-up call that we got that, hang on, society involves all these different groups. And just because you're in your own little bubble of leadership and the middle class doesn't mean that everyone lives those kinds of lifestyles. You know, Yeah, and you know, it is very concerning to see the way that they're responding to some of these these, to, to their own outbreak in Sydney. And also the worst part about, um, this is the last point I ended on before I, we have to wrap up the program,
0: um, is, you know, the worst part is really the New South Wales government holds the responsibility for letting this outbreak go out of control. It wasn't some nobody um, flaunting the rules that led to this. It was actually the government's own Absolutely failures government and action, then they're yeah. trying to pin it back onto us which I just think is quite reprehensible yeah. now I'll like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week um, we've we hope um, you enjoyed our program and we'll hopefully see you all next week um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR talk to you later everyone this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left
2: Radio brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise,
2: you workers from your slumbers! Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and it. last since the age of can Away
0: with all your superstitions, serve our masses, arise. We'll change
2: henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the, the commies are back, <laughs> reds underneath your beds in that crap.